Yeah, give the Lord a hand. I love what God's doing in Anchorage because it reminds me not only what he's doing there, but what he's doing here. You know, Moberly has seen this happen before where we partner with a local church. In fact, this happened in Marshall at our Marshall location where a church donated their property to our church so that we could renovate it and give it kind of a new life in helping grow the kingdom of God. And so we are stewards, uh, even as far reaching as Anchorage of uh, what God has blessed us with. It is a huge blessing uh, to be a part of something like that. And uh, I would encourage you guys just to continue to pray for Philip. Uh, In fact, I'd like to just start with that. Would that be okay? Can we just take a moment and pray for Philip and for the ministry at True North Church in Anchorage? Would you join me in that? Let's pray. God, we pray for your will to be done through Philip and Andy and Lizzie. We thank you for their life, for their sacrifice to live all the way up in Alaska uh, because of their love for people, their love for your church, and their uh, just heart to see that place change for Jesus Christ. We pray that they would be successful, that they would have all their needs met. We pray like Philip just said that you would, God, use their church to make a generational impact for the gospel in Anchorage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We uh, did just have a mission team return like Philip talked about. And I was thinking as I prepared this message about my first mission trip. I was a freshman in high school. I was in the Moberly Youth Group as I was growing up. And uh, I went on a mission trip as a freshman to Sheridan, Wyoming. And we used to take trips every year to Wyoming with our students. Some of you may remember that. But that was my first trip. And I'll never forget, as a freshman in high school, we were being trained uh, here to go on that trip. And my little group was being led by one of our adult leaders who was one night at training assigning tasks. Like this is what each student would be responsible for when we got there. And he was announcing these tasks. And he gets to me and he says, "Uh, Jeffrey, you're going to be... Uh, responsible for leading the music at the vacation Bible school that we're putting on. I, I had no idea why he chose me for that. I was thinking to myself, you have the wrong guy. <laughs> you must have made a mistake. Like there must have been something wrong on the paper you're looking at. Uh, you know, you, you meant to say someone else's name. That doesn't sound like me at all. And uh, I actually spoke up and I said, I, I don't think I can do that. I mean, I, I don't I have a guitar, but I don't really play it. You know, I don't really know how. And uh, I'm not really sure that this is for me. This is some, you need to give me a different assignment. And so he literally stops the meeting. He pulls me aside. And he sit, looks me in the eye and he says, hey, listen. Paul Coleman told me that in seven, when you were in seventh grade, he taught you some chords on the guitar. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, and he said, he said, you still have a month to prepare. You can do this. In fact, you will do this. <laughs> and I needed that. In fact, that was one of the most defining moments of my life. Maybe you don't know my story, but uh, when I came back to Moberly to serve after seminary, part of what I did in our student ministry when I was one of our youth ministers was I, I led the worship team and I, I led the students who were in the worship band. I never would have seen that coming as a freshman in high school. When we went to South Dakota to plant churches, one of my responsibilities was to be the worship pastor. I never would have seen that coming as a freshman in high school. The adult leader that mission trip, he never saw that coming either. But that's the kind of thing God can do when you take a step from spiritual ownership 
to spiritual leadership. And this is the first time in my life as a freshman that I had ever done anything like that. But how we talk about discipleship to Jesus at Moberly is with these five stages. I want to show you these. It starts with spiritual foundation, where someone lays the groundwork for you to eventually put your faith in Jesus, to become a Christian. And then at some point, by God's grace, God calls you to salvation. You respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. And you put your faith in him and you are, are transformed into a new creation. You're born again, the Bible says. And that leads to a lifelong process of making spiritual discoveries, learning more about Jesus, learning more about the Bible, and then applying those things to your life, owning them spiritually, so that then you can lead others spiritually. Now, what happens to most of us is we get stalled out at stage four. We get to spiritual ownership and we think we're doing great because now we've got some, maybe some spiritual disciplines. We're really owning our faith. And then we get stuck because we don't see ourselves as capable of being spiritual leaders. But the Bible is clear that this is where Jesus is taking us as his followers. We are all meant to be spiritual leaders as we follow Jesus. This is what happens in the Gospel of Mark as we are studying the Gospel of Mark. Now today we're in chapter 6 and I would encourage you as I'm kind of just sharing this beginning point to grab your Bibles and start opening them up. But Mark kind of has this trajectory of these five stages. You know, in chapter 1 it starts with John the Baptist and he's right, a voice crying out in the wilderness. He's literally laying the foundations, the spiritual foundation for others to come to Christ. And then Jesus comes along and he starts preaching the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. And then he's walking by the lake in chapter 1 and he sees these guys fishing and he says, come follow me. And they choose to follow Jesus in faith. Their lives are changed. They're born again, spiritual birth. And then from that point, they continue making these discoveries about Jesus as they follow him, they see him performing miracles. They listen to him teaching in the synagogues. They're constantly seeing, their eyes are being opened more and more to who Jesus is, to his remarkable power and authority. Then they start in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, we see kind of some glimpses of these guys actually taking what they're learning from Jesus and applying it to their own lives, taking ownership of it. So that by the time we get to chapter 6, Jesus is sending them out as leaders. Now, who would have seen that coming? Well, in chapter 1, you know what Jesus' first promise to his first disciples was? He said, I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you spiritual leaders. From the very first interaction Jesus has calling them to faith, he says, we're going all the way to stage 5. Right, you're being born again, you're choosing faith. Let me just tell you right from the get-go, the end game here is for you to be a spiritual leader. And that is true for every follower of Jesus. So what can we learn from these guys? Well, I wanna encourage you to uh, open your Bibles to Mark 6 if you haven't yet. Grab your phone and look at it there or follow along on the screen. And in fact, if you're able and willing, I would invite you to stand with me both here on our campus at the Marshall campus, even if you're watching online, you can stand with us in honor of God's word and you can follow along silently as I read verses seven through 13 of Mark chapter six. 
It says, he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Thanks. You can have a seat. So like I went on a first mission trip, this was kind of the disciples' first mission trip. And the best mission trips are the ones that don't end when you come home. You know, the best mission trips are the ones that equip you to live a life on mission, right? And so what can we learn from the disciples' first mission trip in order to help us take that important step from spiritual ownership into spiritual leadership? Because Jesus makes it much more accessible than we ever maybe thought. And we'll see what happens. In verse 7, we start by seeing that following Jesus is a call to purpose. Following Jesus is a call to purpose. In verse 7, it says he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. So we see here right away Jesus' pattern for discipleship, that Jesus brings people in close so that he can send them out. And this was no surprise. I mean, we have the first disciples in chapter 1 who knew they would become fishers of men. But in chapter 3, Jesus actually lays this out. He's got lots of followers, but he picks out 12 and he brings them in close. And he says to them in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that he appointed 12 who he also named apostles for these three things, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority over demons. So none of this stuff was new to these disciples. It was kind of an expectation that had been given to them. But I imagine these guys being a lot like us. I mean, fishermen, professional people, you know, they, in, in first century Israel, I think it's probably a lot like just regular East Texas folks. I imagine these guys, when Jesus says, this is what you're going to do. I'm going to give you authority over unclean spirits. You're going to be preaching in my name. They're probably going... I don't know if you got the right guy. I mean, Jesus, I don't know if you know my background. I'm not really a public speaker. I, you know, I'm not sure that you, I mean, maybe you had something wrong on your paper there. I'm not sure you're calling me to the right thing. Maybe there's a different assignment you can give me. And I imagine they're probably thinking to themselves, like preaching, like casting out demons. This is this is all kind of crazy. Like, I'm still struggling spending quality time with Jesus every day. Maybe you've got something else or someone else for that job. But I think, I wonder, maybe this happened this way, that Jesus pulled them aside, kind of like my leader did with me, and looked them in the eye and said, Hey, listen, I've already shown you how this is done. You know, you've got a little time to prepare. I'm going to be with you, and, and guess what? You can do this. In fact, if you follow me, you will do this. Wow. 
How meaningful of a moment could that have been in the disciples' lives? Well, this is the purpose of a disciple. God's plan is to involve us in his spiritual work. The work Jesus started, which was to establish God's kingdom on the earth. This was what God was up to, and he's choosing to do it through his followers, moving them into spiritual leadership. You've probably prayed the prayer before, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what God wants to accomplish through his people. It is the purpose of a disciple. And when Jesus gives a disciple purpose, he also provides them with the power to see it through. Okay, and so in verse 7, if you're looking at it with me, it gives this word that's interesting. It's the word authority. It also showed up in chapter 3 when Jesus said the purpose of his followers. Authority. Well, this word authority, it literally means jurisdiction. We don't talk about jurisdiction a lot in our just everyday conversations, but you know what it means. But if not, I'll just paint the picture for you. Say you're standing out in summertime in the evening and you're watering your grass or your flowers because they're all dying. And you're watering your grass in your front yard and somebody just speeds down your road. And, and it just, I mean, it almost blows you back. You go, whoa, how could they be doing that? You know, you might wave at them. You might, you know, you might give them a dirty look or something. You might go in the house and grumble and complain to your spouse or say something to somebody the next day at work about how crazy this driver was, but really there's not much you can do about it, right? But what if somebody sped down your road right in front of your house and you were sitting in a patrol car wearing a uniform and a badge? Your response to that situation would be so much different, would it not? You'd do something about it because you have jurisdiction. Well, God is giving his followers spiritual jurisdiction, authority to join him in his work of establishing his kingdom here on earth. You've got power given by almighty God to be a spiritual leader. And Jesus wants to move you from ownership to leadership. Jesus confirmed this when he was resurrected and with the disciples getting ready to ascend to heaven. He says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This is our purpose. Now, when you understand your purpose, maybe you even comprehend that Jesus has given you power and authority to accomplish this purpose. There's still a huge barrier that we have in our lives here today in 2022, and that is we just don't have time. We just, I mean, I, I can barely get my kids to practice on time. You know, maybe at your work, you know, there's no employees to speak of and you're having to pick up extra shifts and, and do someone else's job because, you know, COVID and all that or whatever the reason is. And you're going, I want to, I want to be a part of God's work. I'm just not sure how I'm going to fit it in. I mean, I can barely keep up with my own life. How am I supposed to do something for God? Well, I want to give you a tool. I want to show you a picture. I want you to imagine right here a wagon wheel. Think about it, Old West or something like that. Just think about the wagon wheel, a big wooden wagon wheel. And just picture it right out in front of you. And I want you to think of every spoke on that wheel being something important to you. You know, one might be your, your career, one, one might be your family, 
One spoke might be, uh, you know, your, your kids' activities, your church activity, and on around, and some of you may have more spokes than others, and that's all right. But what most of us do is we live our lives sprinting around the rim of that wheel, just going as fast and as frantic as we can to get from one thing to the next, to cover all of our bases, to make sure everything and everyone is taken care of. Does that sound exhausting to you? Does it sound familiar to you? But the invitation of Jesus and discipleship to him is so different. Jesus doesn't want us sprinting around the rim of our wagon wheel, catching every spoke. The invitation of Jesus' discipleship is the invitation to live with him at the hub, at the center. And if we live with Jesus at the center of everything we are and do, do you know what happens? Every spoke is now within manageable reach from one central place. When you live with Jesus at the center of your life, it changes the way you approach everything. Now you can live out your purpose in every aspect of your life. Jesus can move you from just owning your faith to now leading in your faith, in your workplace, in your family, at your kids' activities, in the church. That is where it begins. That's how you fulfill your purpose. We have mistakenly believed that mission is something we go to. When in reality, Jesus meant it to be something we go from. You see, Jesus in his pattern of discipleship, he brings us in close so that he can send us out. Living with him at the hub is how we accomplish our purpose. And the only thing better than one wheel, by the way, is two wheels going in the same direction, which is where we get to the next point in verse 8. Following Jesus is a call to partnership. It's a call to partnership. This is what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. If either falls, his companion can lift him up. You know, there's a lot of reasons in verse 7 why Jesus sent uh, people out in pairs. Uh, maybe it was because the Jewish custom of that day, uh, maybe even the law, required that they needed two people uh, to verify any matter. You had to have two witnesses. Maybe Jesus had a vision for accountability. You know, guys going out in strange places. Maybe these guys needed accountability. Maybe these guys were just so new to spiritual leadership they needed encouragement from one another. There's any number of reasons why Jesus might have sent them out in pairs, but the key is recognizing that we need people. We need partners in our journey of discipleship to Jesus. Um, speed has never been one of my strong suits. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I was uh, trying to get on the varsity soccer team. From the time I was three years old, I played soccer, loved soccer, still play soccer when I can, I'm trying not to get hurt. But when I was in high school as a sophomore, I had to run a six minute mile to make the soccer team. That was it, that was the rule. It didn't matter how good, didn't matter how good you were at soccer. If you couldn't run the six minute mile, JV. <laughs> And as a sophomore who had been playing soccer all my life, I just thought that would be humiliating, you know. So I was struggling, though. I was struggling. So the final day came to run the six-minute mile. If I didn't make it, I, I mean, I just wasn't going to be on the team. I'd have to play JV another year. Well, what happened to me was pretty incredible. 
I didn't ask for it. But other guys who had already run their six-minute mile, they chose to run with me to help me set pace. And by the time we got to that fourth lap around the track, I remember it to this day. I'm not even sure my feet were hitting the track. I think they might have been carrying me. The coach was calling out the time. And then when I crossed the line, the time was five minutes and 58 seconds. I remember it like it was yesterday. You know what that teaches us? That teaches us the principle, the same thing that Jesus was trying to teach his disciples. You need partners in the journey of discipleship. You need people who are going to strengthen you, who are going to help set your pace, who are going to lift you up when you're feeling weak, who are going to push you forward into purpose. You need these people. Can you name those people in your life? Who are the people that miss you when you're not here on a Sunday, that reach out to you? Can you name them? Who are the people that, that challenge you every time you talk to them in your faith? They're always bringing up scripture around you. They're always asking if they can pray for you. They're always helping you see people in a new light as people who need to hear about Jesus. They're asking you about who you're sharing Jesus with. Who are these people in your life? Can you name them? I think this is something our church can grow in. I think this is something that we need to think seriously about and move from just being in big rooms together to then starting to be in smaller groups together where we're partnering with each other in the journey of discipleship. Can you name the people that you're investing in? Can you name the people that you are bringing along in the faith? If you can't, you need to take this seriously, that Jesus is saying to follow him, it's a call to partnership. So what will that look like in your life? Here's a challenge. Today at lunch, you can, you can make this happen. Maybe it's when you go to connect group. Whoever you sit next to in your connect group, whoever you sit next to at lunch, ask them a question. Say, how can I help you be stronger as a disciple of Jesus? Wow. That may seem so foreign to your lunch conversations, but it would make a huge difference in your life. You never know what God could do through that. You know, when you know your purpose and you have partners on the journey, you really figure out that you just don't need much else. And what you do need, God will provide. God makes provision. Following Jesus is a call to provision. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff, no bread, no traveling bag, no money, but wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. Now, this is interesting it's a what to bring list and a what not to bring list. Every good youth minister knows that you need a what not to bring list. <laughs> this is, you never know what kids are going to show up with, right? Well, it's the same with discipleship. And what's really interesting about this passage is that these two verses are almost an exact replica from the book of Exodus. When the people of God are preparing for the Passover... The Passover, when, when God would sweep through Egypt, the angel of death, taking all the firstborn sons, but the ones who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, God would pass over that residence, spare their lives so that the next morning they could get up and get out of Dodge, right? They were, bring, being, uh, they were being, having the exodus from slavery in Egypt so that they could experience God's promised land. That's where God was taking them. 
So when it comes to discipleship to Jesus, we're in the same boat. Stuff is really just going to weigh us down. And we can trust God to provide for our needs. You know, when we were uh, having our, our kids are still young, but when they were really young, we started trying to car camp with our kids, you know, where you just like load up the car and go take a tent and go camping. And the first time we went camping, I promise you, you would have thought we were moving across the country. Like we just had everything in the house. It's like, I think we're going to need that. I think we're going to need that. I think we're going to need that. But you know, after a couple times like that, you realize you just don't need all that much stuff. And so we, you know, think we got a little smarter and we, now we just have a couple of tubs in the garage with some of our supplies. And uh, when we get ready to camp, you know, on like the three nights in, in, in the year in Texas where it's comfortable to camp outside, <laughs> we can just grab the tubs and run to the grocery store and get some groceries and, and then we can go and we can enjoy it and we can come home. <laughs> this is what mission with Jesus looks like is just for us to be ready to go knowing that it just doesn't take that much and we realize that we don't need that much to be spiritual leaders. God actually takes what we do have and he leverages it for greater kingdom impact. But check this out. If you look into verse 10, you recognize that not only was God thinking about the needs of the people, the disciples along the way, he was thinking about the people along the way of the disciples. While Jesus was preparing the disciples with the what to bring list and the what not to bring list, God was going ahead of them preparing the, dest the de destination. There were people in these places where the disciples were going who opened up their homes to the disciples. The most personal thing about their lives. Sometimes maybe it could, for, could be for a long period of time. When we go on mission trips, we, we try to like, you know, do it cheaply. We sleep on a church floor and we, we're up and out, you know, and that's how we travel. But these guys were experiencing hospitality from people that went so much farther than just maybe a mattress or a meal. It was about relationships. These were the people where God wanted the disciples to start with their ministry. And so they were growing these relationships with people. So I want you to think about your relationships. Because when you move from spiritual ownership to spiritual leadership, as you follow Jesus, you will find that every single relationship is an opportunity for ministry. So think about the people in your family who maybe don't know the Lord. Think about the people at your workplace who you have felt the nudge to have a spiritual conversation with them. And God is pushing you out from ownership to leadership going, hey, that person has a need that you can meet. Hey, here's a conversation that you can have. Here's a window to talk about Jesus with this person. And most of us fall short. We stop short. We get nervous. What are they going to say? How are they going to think of me? What if this conversation goes bad and I still have to come to work tomorrow and talk to them again, you know? Is this person not going to be my friend anymore when they find out what I really believe? And we stop short. But not only is God pushing us out into leadership, we have to recognize that he's also going in front of us, preparing the relationships that we have with people for ministry. And this is something I think this, we need to recognize and have an increased faith in, to believe that when God nudges you that he's also going in front of you. He makes provision not just for stuff. He makes provision in your relationships. This is the goodness of God and the mission of God. But while God is always at work, the work's not always automatic. 
So verse 11, this is what we see, that following Jesus is a call to persistence. Persistence. If the disciples learn anything from Jesus in the first six chapters of Mark, it's to expect opposition, to expect rejection as they stepped into spiritual leadership. The encouragement of verse 11, the encouragement of verse 11 is to not get bogged down in rejection. If Jesus had gotten bogged down in rejection, if Jesus had gotten bogged down in the rejection from the Jewish leaders or from his hometown friends, maybe even from his family members that he experienced rejection from, if he had gotten bogged down in that, you know what? He never would have made it to the cross. Rejection is kind of like a quicksand that keeps us from living our life purpose. In fact, I'm not so sure that the fear of rejection isn't solely responsible for the lie that a lot of us live under, which is that your faith is meant to be private and personal. You know, Jesus absolutely calls us into a personal relationship with him. He he draws us in close, right? But he always, remember the pattern from verse 7? He always draws us in close in order to send us out. This is what he does. He's moving us to spiritual leadership. And so we've got to fight this lie that rejection is, is something that is going to stop us. But we've got to think of it more in terms of spiritual leadership as like our kids when they learn the song, Going on a Bear Hunt. Have you heard this one? Any, this is the 930s. So some of you guys have some kids in the nursery, right? Okay. So, uh, you know, going on a bear hunt and all of a sudden there's an obstacle like a forest or a river or, you know, a cave or whatever it is. And you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You got to go through it, right? Well, spiritual leaders who expect opposition, expect rejection, it's like going on a bear hunt and we go, uh-oh, rejection. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. We have to go through it. But here's the good news. There's two things that makes rejection bearable for the life of a follower of Jesus. The first is this, is that we will never experience rejection like Jesus did because Jesus did. The second is this, when we experience rejection in the name of Jesus, it's not a rejection of us. And it's heartbreaking, but it is a rejection of him. So Jesus gives us this encouragement in verse 11 with this phrase, shake off the dust. Shake off the dust. Because we were never meant to bear the weight of someone else's rejection of Jesus. But he didn't stop there, did he? He said, shake off the dust as a testimony against them. Now, what does this mean? Well, shaking off the dust in the first century, this, this was a, a final, a last-ditch uh, effort, uh, a, way to, a way to express their compassion It was a way to symbolically warn the people of the impending judgment that was coming if they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. It wasn't spiteful or mean-hearted or angry. It wasn't shake off the dust and forget them, let's move on. It was a call to to come and, and repent. It was an act of compassion and kindness. It was probably tearful as they did it, because God values every person supremely, even the ones that reject him. In fact, 2 Peter, Peter reminds us of this truth in chapter 3 when he says that God is 
patient with all, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. This is what God wants. And God's calling us as we follow Jesus to persist in sharing Christ through rejection as long as Jesus will extend grace because every person matters supremely to God. And so this is where I want to wrap up. It's that following Jesus is a call to people. It's a call to people. Verse 12 and 13 show these amazing miracles that are happening through people as they follow Jesus. And what can be inferred is that they had to persist through rejection in order to see the reward, okay? But when you look at the people they dealt with, verse 12 and 13, this is not a pretty picture. We're talking about sinners who needed repentance. We're talking about demon-possessed people who needed freedom. We're talking about sick people who needed healing. And this is what struck me. To be able to shake the dust off your feet, it means that first you have to be willing to go through the dirt. And if you know anything about people, you know people's lives are messy. You can probably look at your own life. And if you're honest, you'd say, yeah, my life is kind of messy too. And so what a spiritual leader does is a spiritual leader becomes willing to get dirty so that others can be made clean. That's what spiritual leadership is. That's the crux of it. In fact, the New Testament has a word. It's not in this passage, but it's in the theme verse of Mark. It's the word diakonos, and it's translated three different ways in the New Testament. The first way is maybe you thought it was sounded familiar, diakonos. It's where we get the word deacon, and it's translated like that in the New Testament. It's also translated to the word servant. It's also translated to the word minister. But you know what it means? If you break it down, the dia, this prefix, means through, and konos, the suffix, means dirt or dust. So literally, as Jesus calls us to ministry, to service, to spiritual leadership, he's calling us through the dirt to get into the mess of people's lives to help them see the Savior that can make them clean. This is our responsibility. It's our role. It's our purpose. It's what our call is. We cannot stop at spiritual ownership. We must become spiritual leaders. I want to end with just a, a story about a serve team on our Longview campus here. It's called the Moberly Assist Team. Um, you may know about it. You may not. You may see people walking around with lanyards or, or earpieces in. And, and to the untrained eye, it just looks like this is just your run-of-the-mill church security team right there. They're, they're making sure we're all safe, and they are. Praise the Lord. But when someone wants to be on that team, I heard this from one of their leaders recently. When someone wants to be on that team, most often they approach them and they go, hey, I really want to serve on the security team. I'm a really good shot. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> and <laughs> praise the Lord for this guy's leadership. He says, I'm sure you are. <laughs> Lord willing, we'll never find out. But let me ask you this. Are you willing to change someone's tire in your slacks and dress shoes? Are you willing to clean up a child's vomit in the classroom? Are you willing to stop what you're doing and share the gospel with someone or pray with someone in need on a Sunday morning? Because that's the kind of work we do every single week. That's the Moberly Assist Team. That is spiritual leadership. That is through the dirt kind of ministry. That's what Jesus calls us to, to real people in real situations. And he's given us real responsibility. 
to bring his kingdom to reality on the earth through our ministry. So you may not feel capable or qualified, but I hope what you see through the first mission trip of the disciples is Jesus saying to you, you can do this. I'm with you. And if you're going to follow me, you will do this. You can be a spiritual leader. Maybe it's joining a serve team. Maybe it's having a spiritual conversation for the first time. Maybe it's going home tonight and telling your spouse or your kids, I want to be a spiritual leader, and starting there. What kind of difference could God make in your life and in his kingdom when we take that next step? I'm going to invite Nate to come up, and he's going to help just give us a, just a short song of response. And while he's coming, I want to point you to the theme verse of Mark again. Chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. There's that word, diakonos. The Son of Man came to go through the dirt for you, to be dragged through the mud for you, to give his life as a ransom for many. Salvation can be found in Jesus alone. And if you need to respond to Jesus today in faith and repentance, you can do that. And we want to help you take that step to be born again, to have a new spiritual life in front of you and to live with Jesus so that he can send you out as a spiritual leader. While Nate sings, you can even slip out and get a head start back to Guest Central. Or when we dismiss, you can meet me at Guest Central. We'd love to help you take that step. God, thank you for this opportunity to see your word and to respond to you. Would you move in people's hearts? Lead us to be spiritual leaders in Jesus' name. Amen.